Okay folks, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barak ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in, Allahumma la sahla illa ma ja'antahu sahla wa anta tajul al-hazna idha ashid sahla, Allahumma a'inna ala dhikrika wa shukrika wa husna ibadatik ya rabbil kareem. As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh everybody. Hope everybody is doing well, hope everybody is enjoying the cold burst or cold start. Um, what do they call a snap? Okay, this snap of cold weather. What do they call the 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 beautiful sun on this cold morning? Welcome. Yes, welcome. But there's a beautiful word. What is the specific feeling of freezing cold, sunny, still? Mornings. Apricity. You're welcome. Susie Dent is my favorite person on the whole planet, by the way. She might just be my favorite human being on this planet. Every day she's taking a dig at someone or, or rating someone. She gets it right all. You know what? It's very difficult to get it right all the time. She gets it right all the time. Every, exactly. Not Rishi Sunak, all of them. And she does it in a way without anybody and you're getting any kind of trouble. She just drops the word. It could be down and she's right, saying the right word. You could be happy, watch the sun and she's saying the right word. Bro, how did that girl do it? Compared to the other Bagherat Yani Kaud, the one next to her. Flipendai Yuzan is a dog. Yeah. There you go. You see? Not people, not all people are the same. Right. The good thing about watching YouTube, as I can see if my hat's bent or not. Is that, is that right, Heba? Is it bent? It's okay, yeah? Alright. Alright, Bismillah, folks. So, I hope we're good. Um, so, uh, last week, Alhamdulillah, was very nice because we were able to get this uh, a location for um, overlooking the Haram, which has been a while since we've been able to do that, and it's nice. No way, is it Hacks? Hacks, is that you sitting in the middle? It's like... Are you trying to be religious or something right now? <laughs> Hacks, to be honest, bro, this is a big moment. When was the last time he was ever even close to an LP lesson, bro? It's got to be 12 years, isn't it? And I knew it. I knew it. I knew that something was coming. I knew it. I knew it. Right. Um, here we go. Fizzer says, Apricity, the warmth of the sun in winter. That's right. That's right. Miriam, Mariam Webster, by the way. That's the dictionary, Mariam Webster, just in case there's any doubt. Um, so, yeah, so it's been a while since we had a nice view like that. So um, it was nice. And also, the big, it was very nice to do the lesson and everything. But the biggest shame, of course, is that Shazad Salim was not in the room because we covered his section. Although we had some fun online and he tried to defend himself. And, yeah, you know, it worked, it, it went as it did. Right then, Shazad Salim, where are we? We're at the bottom of page 368, okay? We are at the bottom of page 368, and I need to find the notes. Al-Mustaqna' 1. Let's have a look. Oh, yes, very good, Shazad Salim. So one must pray, let's, let's go to that one straight. One must pray the, oops, what's happening there? So... In the Arabic, we did all of this like last week, okay? It was a big lesson, actually. 
This is the second line of the Arabic. أو في سفر ثم أقام أو ذكر الصلاة حضر في سفر أو عقصها أو اتم بمقيم أو بمن يشك فيه أو أحرم بالصلاة يلزمه إتمامها ففسدت وأعادها Today's stuff. أو لم ينوي القصر عند إحرامها أو شك في نيته أو نوى إقامة أكثر من أربعة أيام أو ملاحا معه أهله لا ينوي الإقامة ببلد لزمه and you Tim. Probably get through most of that except the last part. Um, one must pray the prayer in full, right? We're now going through the various scenarios. One must pray the prayer in full if one was to start the prayer as a resident and then travel. If one was to start the prayer as a traveler and then become a resident. If one is a traveler and remembers a prayer that he missed as a resident. Number four is vice versa. So he is now a uh, uh, a thingy, a, a, a resident, and then remembers a prayer that he missed when he was traveling. Yeah. If one prays behind a resident, yeah, um, or prays behind someone and he doubts his actual status, is he resident? Is he a traveler? That classic scenario. Yeah. Um, if one prays a prayer that should be offered in full, which is then invalidated for some reason and is then repeated, if one did not intend to shorten at the beginning of the prayer. If one is doubtful about his intention, whether he made it for shortening or not, yeah. If one intended to be a resident in a place for more than four days, and if a sailor who has his family with him doesn't intend residency in any place. In all of these scenarios, according to the, madha, the madhab, according to our author, you complete the prayer. Complete the prayer meaning you pray in full, all right? So as I said, we covered a load of these, and we are now, we finished al-mas'alat uh, al-khamisa, which was... Um, the pray, pray behind the resident Okay, and we said that there's pretty much agreement on that Common sense as well The Prophet Sallallahu uh, 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 Hadith indicate that The statement of the companions indicate that It's nice and simple The Imam has been placed there to be follow, to follow And so therefore when he, you are praying behind an Imam And the Imam prays for And you only need to pray two You don't get off after two Or you don't come late for two And only do the last two You don't pick and choose you start with the Imam, you end with the Imam. If even if you came late with the Imam, then you would finish off the full four prayer. That's what we covered the last thing that we did last week. The next part then is Oh Biman Yashakafi. Oh you don't know. This is the sixth scenario. Oh you don't know, you're not sure of whether this guy is an uh, is a, a resident or a traveller. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now Sheikh says at the top of three hundred and sixty-nine, he says this is obviously something which happens. Um, th this scenario is only going to come up because this is nonsense to be thinking this in a, in a masjid. You don't go into your local masjid and think, is this Imam Musafir or is he not, right? This is the classic scenario that happens in a uh, prayer room, right? In an in a, in a, uh, uh, airport, for example, or uh, some place like that, or the road masjid that don't really commonly happen in this country, we've got a few on the, on the M6 and here and there, but um, uh, uh, and you're, you're generally not sure, right? Now, of course, uh, nowadays, um, you find more and more people that are working either, and we spoke about this yesterday, last week as well, who are living in the airport or living very close to the airport. So, uh, folks were talking about Heathrow, we were talking about Style Road, for example, which is effectively, you know, going to work is literally five minutes away. We spoke about that 
So how can a person who works in the airport, because what we said is that the airport is effectively your nice and simple, easy ruling. That's the simple one that I give to people, that if you're going to the airport and traveling, you can start your qasr immediately from the airport. Someone would say, well, what if you're, uh, but, but you shouldn't be doing it at home. If you're going to pray at home and you need some kind of concession, firstly, you shouldn't be really taking concessions at home. But if you do need a concession and you need a hand, that hand is going to be combining. It's never going to be shortening, right? Because you can't shorten whilst you are at home. The argument is then, well, what if home is the airport? And this means people who actually live in the airport, and by that we're talking staff and people and who work there and it's their place or whatever, or people who live so close to the airport that they might as well be in the airport. So we're talking about uh, those that are on the road, you know, between Terminal 1, Terminal 2, Terminal 2, Terminal 3, there's residential roads. And as I said, the classic example here is Style Road, right? So, although I'm pretty sure it's not called Style Road, someone said that, but you know when you go down your road, Shaz, and you turn right, What's that right? Wash, what, wasn't it ring, washway, wrong, ringway, that one? The one they closed. That was ringway one. I knew it was uh, not Style Road. I, I accepted it. Style Road is the biggest, the long one. So that ringway, ringway road is still got houses on it, right? And obviously it's not now become a thoroughfare for the traffic, for the cars, but people still can. In fact, what do they do if they want to go to the airport? They can't because obviously it's blocked up now. So how, how do they get out? So they can get to the petrol station and come out? Yeah, so they can out. They can walk, but they can't drive. Yeah. They can, huh. Right, got it. Got it. So that's a classic example. You can't get more in the airport than that. I mean, it's literally on the, the runway. The, the, their front garden leads onto, their, onto the runway, right? So the argument there is, is that can we give these folks the concession of shortening in the airport? And it is a matter of doubt. Okay, because what, what did we say? We were speaking obviously last week about right? <coughs> Meaning that once he leaves the houses, what did we say? We said that a person is a traveler and starts to take the benefit of traveling as soon as he leaves his areas inhabited houses. And we had this big discussion about the that um, you don't include the boundaries that where the houses are, are uninhabited. But if you are living in inhabited areas and then there was like empty houses or, or development going on, and then the houses start again in your area, your village, your town, the second you go out of your town as a postal area or as a neighborhood, then you can start taking the advantage of Qasr. And we also said that this, as Sheikh Uthameen said, this does not include a person, for example, moving from Gatli to Hild Green. Because Gatli to Hild Green is it's seamless. Cheadle to, to Gatli to Hild Green to Handforth, whatever it is, it's seamless. Ilford to East Ham to Upton Park to Manor Park, whatever, it's seamless. Whatever you know, uh, part of the country that you live in, there's going to be towns where there's no difference in the thing. A postcode will change, um, but the roads are continuous. And the point being is that once, according to the authorities of the area, we've moved now from Longsight into Levensume, or we've moved into whatever, that now you've left the town or the village of your people, and you can start to take the benefit of the Qasr, right? Now, the argument remains, if a person's on Runway Road, for example, or if a person is on the road, main road from Heathrow, Terminal 3 to Terminal 
before, is him leaving his house and moving into the vicinity of the airport the leaving of his town or not? And that's the problem. I can see the argument being made for both. No, it, it, it's not the boundary of Manchester because Manchester is like, it's like, uh, it, it's too big an area for the concession of travel. You, know, maybe, uh, you mean travel by air, not necessarily travel? No, 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 we're talking about the status of becoming a traveler. It doesn't matter about air driving, X, Y, Z, no, no. When a person leaves their home, at what point do we believe that this person has now left what we call home? It's not Manchester, is it? If I leave Chidu Hume, for example, I, I, and I'm going to Glasgow, yeah? If I'm still in Chido, I'm still home. But once I leave Chido, I'm now, according to all the scholars, I'm now proper on my journey. But you have to emphasize the journey that you're making. You might be going from Chido to Burnham. No, no, we're talking yeah. about a journey, of course. Yeah, we're not talking about... More than, um, 30 miles. We're, we're talking about a journey of... of whatever we believe you need to be the distance, yeah? So, like I said, the ringway, the, uh, so this is an area of, of, of difference about whether a person who lives right on the, the border of the, of the airport, you can see both arguments. First argument is, is that actually those houses are the very last edge of inhabited housing and they're moving into therefore a different area. And I think that's a strong argument. And I have to say that I can, I can feel like I'm supporting it. On the other hand though, the difference is, is that just like when you think about, um, is Heathrow in Heathrow? Or is it in Hounslow? I think it's Hounslow, or is it Hatford? Is it Hounslow? You see, that's the problem. What's Manchester Airport then? It's not Withenshaw, is it? It bloody does feel like Withenshaw Airport. 100% agree with that. Third world flipping disgrace. And then it got some disgrace. All of our taxes, they, they stole it from us. I believe this. Are we recording, Shaz? I was just about to say, is it permissible to go in and completely just steal everything back? No, no, okay. Um, it's Withenshaw. Ras, bro. Lala, Manchester Airport is definitely not in Cheshire, I can tell you that much. <laughs> but it's actually, ironically, it's closer to Old Trafford than it is anywhere else. But yeah, that's the, that's the I do, I'm about to say it's Ringway. Right. So there you go. Look at that, right? If it's in Ringway, that road is literally called Ringway Road. No, no, meaning that those people themselves, they're not living in any other part, are they? On Ringway Road. There's no doubt. They're either living in Withenshaw or in Ringway. What would be interesting is that what is the postal... So, so I'm just trying to explain that this entire subject, the subject of travel, is not just one of the most differed over generally in fiqh. It's also the first time in 12 years that I can remember and I could be wrong, Mesa will need her, Yani, to come to the fore here, where Sheikh Ibn Uthameen, alayhi rahmatullah, has in his commentary said, let's have a look at the different 
Madahib and what they say about this issue. And he mentioned that there's 20 statements on the matter. And he starts going through the Madahib. I can't remember him doing that before. Like he mentions, you know, a few statements here and there, but he's trying to emphasize that this is a very different over matter because it's so subjective. It's clear the reason why. Because we don't have primary evidence. And without the, in the absence of primary evidence, you're going to see some very useful, as for a student of knowledge, you're going to find some very useful statements that are being made for you to use as part of educational methodology, right? When you have differences of opinion. And of course, one of those uh, uh, statements or principles that we learn is that you therefore don't get too strict in the matter. And therefore, if a person was on Ringway Road and started to shorten in the airport, we're not, you know, he's not done the world's biggest sin. It's definitely an understandable opinion because, yeah, he hasn't left Ringway and he's like a stone's throw from his house. But yeah, he's actually left any semblance of his own village in terms of houses. And he's now in an entire kind of gateway to somewhere else. Both opinions can be supported. One feels riskier. That's fine. That's fine. So what does Sheikh say? So he says, um, anyway, so why we've gone back to there, I don't know. But um, we're talking about praying behind the, the, the muqim. So... You now know about this person and you're going to pray full behind him. Okay, now if you, and obviously the guy prays for, so you obviously, you know, you're praying for behind him. But what about a guy that you don't know? Now, if you don't know, you've got various scenarios, right? So you've come now to the prayer hall and uh, often you'll see now more and more that people generally ask the staff to go forward, people who are cleaners, porters, um, uh, air, 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 airline kind of stuff and obviously for those folks people are assuming that they're praying full and most of them are praying full right so this is real and it and it matters yep no I don't know of him shortening in Quba shorten what from what to what at what point when he arrived you mean even even the arrival would be a matter of difference because that's about you know what the asal of the salah was at that time mashru'iyah till uh, two and into four and so on yeah so what does sheikh say he goes the first one he goes obviously there are some signs you can tell you know a person's carrying a bag and this and that and he goes forward and he goes that should give you uh, an idea and he goes if there is some kind of sign then the issue is clear but if there is no uh, a, a clarity from what this guy is, then according to the madhab, okay, then a person must complete the prayer, must pray four units because you don't know. And this guy could be a resident. This is what the uh, position of the author is. Sheikh says, but the more stronger opinion for him, the preponderant opinion, he goes that a person doesn't need to be completing the prayer in this situation because the asl, the status, the, 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 the default position for a musafir is qasr. The default position for a person who is a traveler is to pray shortened prayer. And he's not required to have to just guess and not required to be trying to be praying for. He only needs to pray short the two. So he shouldn't be trying to you know, he doesn't have to put it upon himself. He 
he goes that we don't know whether the Imam is, is, is uh, 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 completing the prayer or not. And so therefore, we're going to go with uh, what you feel. And your, your asal for you, what's obligated upon you, is the shortened version. If he sees an imam who goes forward in a place in which there are a mixture of people who are resident and are travelers, in atamma imami atmamt wa in qasar qasart. I'm now going to pray behind this guy. And if he prays four, I'm praying four. But if he prays two, there's no way that I'm standing up afterwards and praying two extra when I'm musafir as well, just because I didn't know that he's musafir or not. Do you understand the point? So it's like a bonus. He gives salams and you say, you sick guy, my guy, right? And then you give, you know, salams as well. You're out and he's out and the rest of the people, they can get up. They can get up, it's their problem, right? But he was in this situation and he goes, now obviously what you should be thinking is that how is this possible? And you're meant to make the intention for the prayer at the beginning. And it's meant to be very, very clear. And you can't have doubt about what you're praying. Sheikh Uthameen says, no, this prayer is valid even if it's mu'allaq, even if it's kind of like waiting. Mu'allaq means hanging. And what he means by hanging is that it's like dependent. It's waiting for clarity. It's waiting for a change. So what he says something very interesting. He goes, don't think that waiting for, um, uh, he goes, don't think that uh, this is not something which is doubt. Right? This is a waiting to see what happens based upon reality, not will he, will he not, I don't know what's going on. It's simply, and I've spoken about this before, I'm pretty sure, in chapter of Witter, right? Yeah, I spoke about it. I thought I said that, how do you know that the Imam is going to pray 5, 3, or 1? How do you know if the Imam is going to do 2 and then 1? How do you know that he's going to do 1, 2, 3 standing up? You don't. So what's your intention? Witter behind the Imam. Whatever he prays, let him pray. However he prays, let him pray. He wants to go up and down five times, seven times. All this, of course, is allowed, right? And this is important, that when you're behind an imam, obviously, with us, it's me, jarakat, you know, whatever, this imam, sharif, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and like so much detail. Obviously, when it starts getting funky, like an Eid prayer, or some bakwas, whatever, I don't know, yeah? So the whole situation starts to get really detailed. Now, I'll put it to you. Yani, all these yani, Molvis te- teaching their people, you know, you've got to say this niyat, yeah? And you're praying a guy who does eight takbirat, for example, or 11 takbir behind, uh, you know, as part of Eid prayer. Where does that leave you with your arm um, praying with six takbirs? Uh, 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 wajib prayer, not to fard prayer. You know, all these details are unnecessary. I'm praying behind this Imam Zahar. I'm praying behind this Imam Eid prayer. How he wants to pray, knock yourself out, bro. You know what I'm saying? So you keep the situation general, right? So he goes, I, I like what he says here. فَإِنَّ إِمَامَهُ إِنْ قَصَرَ فَفَرْضُهُ هُوَ الْقَصَرِ يعني, You know, if he does qasar, then that's what was obligated, obligated upon him. And if he does full prayer, then he prays full behind him. 
وإنما وإنما هو من باب تعليق الفعل بأسبابه وسبب الإتمام هنا إتمام الإمام والقصر هو الأصل. This is just absolute clear logic. There's not doubt. This is just waiting for what the situation is going to be, and then when it's activated, you act accordingly. That makes sense. Any questions on this particular version? Yes. So he's catch he's prayed for. Yeah, we covered that last week, right? We said that, uh, and we've just covered it now as well. If a person is praying full, and you pray behind him, and you know that he's praying full, you need to then get up and pray all four. For example, if you arrived late, but if you arrived and you know that the guy is a traveller. Okay, however way you know it, you only need to pray too. Yeah, but for a person to come and do this, where he knows that a person is a resident, and he kind of fluffs around until third rakah, and then just joins him for the last two and says, "Yeah, I'll just give salam with my guy because I only need to do two. This is crazy, and it's a it is an opinion, by the way, but it's a like a, like a very, yani, you know. Controversial opinion. Shmali, yeah. 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 So this is exactly this is exactly this, right? Aubiman Yashukufi. You just said, right? You go to an area. It's a mixed area, so the imam literally could be anything. And now you don't know what he is, yeah. So at some point, something's going to happen, right? Um, in most scenarios, the scenario Suleiman just said is the only one where you don't know, where meaning that the jamaah has started, and you come in, and you start praying, your uh, your, your, your responsibility is to try to make your best assessment of what this guy is. Because if he started, you're not going to be able to know. You don't know whether he just started the prayer. If it was a dhuhr, for example. If it's a maghrib and isha, it's easy because he's either reciting loud or he's not, right? So if it was a dhuhr where it's all quiet, you don't know whether he's in his first raka'ah, whether he's in his third raka'ah. You just don't know. And so you have to then assume what you think the scenario is. I know what I'm doing. If I walk into an airport and I'm praying behind a guy, you are a traveller, mate. And I'm praying too. You know what I'm saying? Because, I mean, that's my only time in my life that I'm going to go into a place where the guy is going to be almost definitely praying to rakah. It's going to be the exception that the guy is going to be a muqim or whatever. And even, I got, even I, I'll tell you this much. Even if I saw a guy in uniform, I'll look at the uniform. Like, I found, from, obviously I pray like this a lot. Yeah? In my experience, that the uh, administrative staff are the ones that lead the prayer most, not the stewards, uh, uh, pilots, the X, Y, Z. It's normally the people who are security and who are X and who are Y. And so when I see that, like 95% of the time, the cleaners, a lot of the cleaners, uh, uh, they're the ones that are thinking, and these people are praying full. So you get an idea of what, what's going on. Yep. The key point to remember is this, not all that. The key is to remember that if your imam is praying full, you have to pray full. 
this is the four imams, this is the vast majority, that's our class position and whatever. But if that person isn't, and you're able to ascertain somehow, then you don't need to. And if you genuinely don't know, if you genuinely don't know, then you look at the situation, you can make an assumption. And as you said, if you're in an area where there's lots of travelers, then why wouldn't you make the assumption that it's two? And then you only do two, and that's okay. Make sense? Yeah? All right. Now the next scenario. أو أحرم بالصلاة يلزمه إتمامها ففسدت وأعادها. What do we translate this as? If one prays a prayer that should be offered in full, which is then invalidated and is then repeated. I put in brackets for some reason because I just found it was kind of difficult to understand. What's this scenario? You basically come into it, you're, you're musafir, okay? You've come into a masjid and they're saying iqama, right? And you line up and Imam goes Allahu Akbar and you say Allahu Akbar and you join the prayer. So you ahrama, you started from the beginning with takbiratul ihram. And then you, for example, let's just say that you make it easier, you pass went. So you break the prayer now, after you've started. That's what he's saying. That's what the author is saying. So if one prays a prayer that should be offered in full, why did it need to be offered in full? Praying behind the resident imam. Okay? You are musafir. You shouldn't need to pray for, but you're praying behind the imam, so you're praying for. Are we happy with that? And now in the first rak'ah, which is then invalidated, for this time we'll say, for this example, we'll say that he passes wind. So now he has to leave the prayer. So he leaves the prayer and he goes and he makes wudu and he comes back and the prayer is finished. That's the scenario. What do you pray right now? The madhab say, what? What did the Hanbali say? You've got to pray in full. Because you started. Alright? The madhab says you've got to pray in full. Alright? This is very important what's going to happen now. Listen carefully. Sheikh Uthameen is giving the explanation and defense for the Hanbali school in this. He's saying, why did they say that? He goes, because you started a prayer that was obligated upon you as four. And you broke that, and it needs to be repeated. And so it was obligated to you as four, so you're repeating the four. Is that clear? You understand the logic, yeah? That's the humbly logic in this situation. Sheikh says, before we speak about this, let's make a difference between what just happened and another scenario. This is you breaking, as the author said, your wudu in the prayer. But he goes, what if a person joined the imam at the beginning, Allahu Akbar, starts the prayer, and then remembers that he doesn't have wudu? Okay? He doesn't have wudu. Why is it this different? He hasn't started the prayer in the first place because he didn't have the precondition for the prayer. So according to our author, this is actually not included. Right? So he goes, you've got to be careful. Right? You've got to be careful how you're understanding this. So he goes, um, uh, yeah. Anyway, so he's just making that He's just making that point clear. Then Sheikh Uthameen says, he goes, anyway, this position from the Hanbali school about, you know, the, that if he breaks the, a prayer during the Salah, he, guide, he goes, he doesn't sit right with me. 
it doesn't sit right with me. And he goes, because the prayer that he joined, it was obligated upon him as four, not because it's obligated upon him as four, but because he was obligated to follow the imam who was praying for. Once he's broken off from the imam, what's obligated upon him? What he started with the imam, or what is obligated upon him? So that's what the Hanbali said. Sheikh Uthameen says, well, of course, yani what's obligated upon him is two rakah, because he's a musafir. And Sheikh says this point, and I want you to listen to this point here. I'm going to translate it verbatim, right? He goes, He goes, it was only obligated for him to pray for, not because that's the default position, but because he was following the Imam. Right? But after the prayer was invalidated, the following of the Imam now has been disqualified and invalidated, and that's all gone now and cancelled because he cancelled the prayer, so the following of the Imam is cancelled. The whole relationship with the Imam is over. Over. So now the only thing which is obligated upon him is the shortened prayer. This is really useful for students. He said, this reasoning, in my opinion, is stronger than the reasoning they used. So he's recognized, may Allah have mercy upon them. So he's recognizing that the issue can be looked at from two angles. You either see that when he started with the Imam and therefore he's got to finish off what he did with the Imam. And so that's therefore four. Or once he's broken up from the Imam, khalas, the Imam situation is gone now. He's back to his own default position and he was only ever obligated to do two. He goes, so therefore he should do two. He goes, I like this reasoning. He goes, and this second one is more better and more stronger to me unless it was opposed by ijma'. This is very useful, what he said here. What he's basically saying is that when you have a scenario that doesn't have primary evidence, and it's now down, down to interpretive reasoning, ishtihad, everybody's ishtihad is their own ishtihad, and you've got to defend yourself, and you think that yours is stronger and his is weaker, and you just go with it. But even in an ijtihadi subjective matter, you should be very, very concerned if everybody on that matter sees it differently. Now, if there was primary evidence, it doesn't matter if everybody else sees it differently. You are on the truth even if you are alone. But in the absence of primary evidence, a clear hadith, a clear ayah, a clear X, whatever, then this is a matter of difference of opinion, and I'm okay with where I am, I see it. Now, like for example, when I'm looking at these two scenarios, I can see the second one very clearly. Let's have a show of hands. Who feels just naturally the first position that you should pray for? Okay, nobody. Second position you should pray to? Makes more sense. It's a logical argument, that's all. Now his point is, is that I could be wrong, but I'm looking on the other side and I don't see all the scholars agreeing on this. So it's clearly not me getting it wrong. And this shows the tool of ijma'ah. And ijma' is a tool. And ijma' is also something very rare, of course, in sharia. You know, most of the books that have been written on ijma', there are three, there are four famous ones. 
The most famous is Al-Ijma'a by Ibn al-Munzir, right? That's the first one ever written. The, most fa- the, the, the second most famous one is Imam al-Nawawi's book. What's that called? I want to say it's called Ijma'a as well, or maybe some other title, right? Or maybe, sorry, sorry. Actually, he didn't write the book. Ijma'a, someone wrote on, before him. Because Imam al-Nawawi has a kind of a, a, a tendency that when he's discussing his kind of opinions and fiqh and discussions, whatever, and he goes, then there's ijma on this, there's ijma on that. So someone came, I could be wrong, I could be wrong, but someone else came later and collected all of the things that Imam al-Nawawi said there's an ijma on, a consensus on, and then they called it the ijma of Imam al-Nawawi. The famous one then was Ibn Hazm. He also had one as well. Then the famous one was then of Ibn Taymiyyah criticizing the books of Ijma'ah. And so what you've had in the first part of the generation are the books that said there's Ijma'ah. And then in the latter parts of history is the books criticizing the authenticity of anyone claiming Ijma'ah because it's such a difficult claim to prove. And also it's so difficult to actually get find something that everybody agrees on as well. Right? So anyway... I want you to remember that when it comes to the matters of ishtihad, um, the matter is relaxed. And I think this, as I said, is a useful kind of uh, uh, scenario. Okay? Um, okay, so there's his looks now causing trouble now, right? So you're praying behind a traveler because he's got Bermuda shorts and a straw hat and he's boarding past there and he says something. Blah, blah, blah. So you intend to shorten, assuming he will too. But the plot twist is that he prays in full because he believes his qasr doesn't start until he's already traveled 50 plus miles. Which is a madness, really, if you think about it. What was the point, Yani, of the, the concession if you've got to travel the full distance in the first place? Which is, which, by the way, people believe. People do believe that, and it's important that we make, make this statement right now that a concession of travel doesn't mean you've got to travel the miles, it means you've got to intend to travel the miles. Whether it happens, doesn't happen, you get turned back, whatever, it doesn't matter. And then once you're out of your area, that's when the concession starts. Remember that always. Anyway, he says, are you obliged to pray in full too because you're following the imam? No breakaways. And the answer, of course, is that no breakaways. If the imam prays full and you took him as your imam, you've got to pray in full. All right. So, um, Sheikh also says something else. He says... Um, so therefore, in conclusion to that, on, on, on page 370, he says, therefore, we can conclude that if a person, he did indeed break away, and he went and made wudu, and he come back, and the prayer is finished, then he only needs to pray two raka'ah by himself, and that's it. Now, if he comes back and catches the imam, this is why you should take your time making wudu, yeah? <laughs> he comes back in the fourth raka'ah, I'm sure I've seen you, Shazdiani, just wash yourself a few extra times. You know, a bit of blow dry, this, that. Use a paper towel between the toes. There's no need for that, Shaz. Um, and obviously, he messes it up and catches the guy in the fourth raka'ah. Then, bro, you best stand up and pray four raka'ahs, bro. Yep. Anyway, Sheikh says, Mas'ala, law dakhala waqt as-salah, wa huwa fi baladihi thumma safra fa'in hu yaqsur. Okay? So, he says this is important. He goes as a reminder, actually, just kind of throwing it in there. He says that if a person um, is at home and Zohar starts, and half an hour after Zohar has started, 
which is now a four rakah prayer that's obligated upon him, he sets off and he leaves his town and he's out of town and now it, uh, he decides to pray, he only prays two. He prays two even though the prayer time has started when it should have been four. If he'd have prayed at home, he prays four. But when he's a traveler, he prays two. And he goes, the vice versa is the same. If you set off your journey and you're in your journey and it's two, but then you get home, you can't say, well, it was only two when it started. Why am I praying four when I get home? No, you pray, ala hasb al hal, right? I'tibaran lil hal. Meaning the situation that you are in, that you find yourself in, is the one that you pray according to. So he will pray for when he gets home. All right. Then, the next statement. This is a classic, happens to me all the time. Because obviously I pray a lot of qasr. I'm traveling a lot, right? And sometimes you completely forget that you are musafir. You start the salah and you're into automatic four rakah mode. So, what happens is he starts, starts and then uh, when he gets like into like Fatiha, you then remember, oh sugar, I didn't make the specific intention that I'm praying Safar prayer. I just said to myself, I'm praying Dhuhr, which is what I always say, right? I'm praying Dhuhr. And when you intend Dhuhr, Dhuhr has a default position, which is four rakah, then you're like, oh my God, I've done myself short here. Now I'm going to have to carry on and pray four because I didn't make the intention at the beginning to pray two. And the intention, of course, needs to be done at the beginning, right? So that's the scenario I'm putting in front of you. So Sheikh says, therefore, if you look at this scenario here, um, our author has said, what has he said? What's our author? Huh? He's got to read four. If you didn't intend as a musafir to make the intention to pray four, uh, to, to pray, make the intention to pray two, You've got to pray your default four, which is what was in your heart and mind by default in the first place, because you didn't change the default position. Clear? He goes, this scenario now brings to the fore that there are now three potential scenarios when a person stands to pray. The first one is that he intends to complete the prayer. And so he completes the prayer. Or, second scenario, he intends to do shortening of the prayer, and so he shortens the prayer. And the third scenario is this one, that he forgets to make the intention for either shortening or uh, uh, full. So he's, he, he's, just, he's just entered into the prayer, praying, he's saying, I'm praying the prayer by name, but he hasn't actually in his head computed that I'm praying full or pray shortened. Okay? So we know that, Sheikh says, at the top of 371, he goes, well, if he's made the intention for full, he's got to pray full, and he's made the intention for shortened, then he's got to pray shortened because... He goes, when a person, the Prophet ﷺ said that every person gets what is intended and the person will only get that which he intends and all actions are by intention. So therefore, when you make the intention, you will now go and complete your prayer. But if you don't, then the Madhab says that you must and the, because the default is the obligatory position. Right? That's the logic behind it. The default is that four raka'ah is obligatory. And once you didn't change it, you've got to go back to default. The second position in the matter, as you can imagine, from Sheikh Uthameen, he says that he will shorten even if he didn't intend shortening. So he will shorten the prayer even if he didn't intend to shorten. And these are his, this is are his words now, verbatim. Because the default position 
in the prayer of the traveler is to pray shortened. And this happens all the time. Uh, sorry, he goes, this happens a lot. He goes, the person says, Allahu Akbar. And then in a four rak'ah unit, right? And then he's a musafir and he forgets that he is musafir. And then after he starts reciting Fatiha or goes into ruku' or something like that, he remembers that he is musafir. And so that moment, then he says, oh, you know what? I'm going to pray shortened. So he starts off thinking I'm praying for, and he believes it's for, and then he realizes, and then he says, I'm going to pray shortened. He says, At this moment when he says that, the madhab says, no, you've got to complete the prayer. You can't just suddenly change your intention. And Sheikh says, the correct position is that he does not have to do al-itmam. Itmam means to complete the prayer. Rather, he shortens the prayer because that is the default position. Because the shortened position, traveling position, is the asl for that person. He started off, sure, with the intention I'm praying for or the belief that I'm just praying, whatever. But if we now take him as a person, what's obligated upon him, it's only two. His default state is two, even if he is thinking his default state is that he's at home and praying for. وَكَمَا أَنَّ الْمُقِيمُ لَا يَلْزَمْهُ نِيَةِ الْإِسْمَامِ كَذَا الْمُسَافِرِ لَا يَلْزَمْهُ نِيَةِ الْقَصْرِ This is a killer statement that he ends with. He goes, and just like the one who's at home never has to make the intention that I'm praying in full, likewise, neither does the musafir ever have to make the intention that I'm praying shortened. What a sick line. Yeah, I repeat, I, I, I will translate it. He goes, وَالصَّحِيحِ and the correct position, that he is not obligated to complete the prayer, rather he shortens the prayer, because to shorten is the default position. And just like the resident, he is not, necess- he is not obligated, it's not necessary, it is not necessary for him to make the uh, niyyah to complete the prayer, Likewise, for the traveler, it is not necessary for him to make the niyyah for qasr. What he means by that is the specific unit number. He needs to know that he's praying a prayer, but the asl upon him, meaning what's the default? If a person is not, yani, you know, locked in. Yeah. I think so. I mean... You know, this is how I've always understood it. That's how I've always taught it. That's what I believe it. In fact, for years, I've been thinking about this, like 20 years actually, right? This is one of the early issues that you think about a lot when you start your study. And when you're, when you, whenever you start your study, what you're doing most is you're dealing with a lot of uh, uh, first-hand material, right? Like you're, you're, you're dealing with hadith, 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 and you're seeing so many different types of versions of the prayer. And from the beginning, I said to myself, how on earth is a musalli behind a person ever meant to know exactly what's happening all the time, right? And the only answer that fits is that the niyyah is more flexible than people think. Now, we don't, on one hand, we don't want to make it so flexible that people just, you see, look, it's a catch-22, this is a really important thing I'm about to say. When it comes to scholars and their kind of statements that the people have memorized, like 
traveling has got to be 50 miles. The, uh, the amount of najasa that I'm allowed is no bigger than a 50 pence coin. The, if I move more than three times, if I itch myself three times in a salah, my salah is invalidated. That's too much movement. These populist kind of teachings that, the, that masses are given by the imams are given because to tell them the actual truth is just way too complicated for them. They can't handle the truth, right? Even if they believe it or not, even if the, 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 the scholar, sometimes the scholar believes in that position as well. But most of the time, a proper scholar is going to know that, well, there's no evidence for 50 pence or 3 or X, but he's just trying to kind of give a, you know, a simple system to the people so they can live by. Otherwise, they're going to be all over the place in their head. Am I, am I not? Am I, am I not? Now, you can see the logic behind that. Where is the downside to that? Now, now imagine they were now going to do something for the niyyah, right? Now, for the niyyah, what are they saying? They're saying you've got to, like, not just like make istihdar, which means not do you just need to be fully in the moment, fully in the presence, but you've got to like say it as well because you can't trust your thoughts kind of thing. Right? Like you can see because when you look at the issue of waswas, right? It's a killer. And a lot of people obviously suffer from waswas. Everyone suffers from waswas, but people of different levels. And obviously when it gets to OCD madness levels, yeah? where it's just like so out of control, you can't do anything. You've got to have some kind of solution. So obviously these are not psychologists, psychiatrists, medical therapists, specialists, counselors. They're scholars who are trying to kind of make the best out of a difficult situation. And so one of the ideas they come up with is words and speaking something. Because when you speak something, you just reduce. It's basically giving people things that they can hang on to that are tangible, palpable, things that you can take the subjectivity out of, right? When you leave it to yourself, I'm telling you now, right? It's just I chose the moment to, to walk out, yeah? But I tell you an absolutely hilarious part. I've got my car service this week, last week. Battery is absolutely shot, right? The battery keeps, you can't do anything, the battery keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. And I'm like, there's definitely something which is draining the battery. And by the way, my previous car, I had that. A, the battery drains when there's a, a phone kit that's not perfectly wired in or a dash cam or whatever, whatnot. So I said, there's definitely something shorting this and it's draining the battery all the time. Yeah. I go to the garage guy and he goes, listen, you want all these things fixed. I want you to write out for me. So I wrote him out, typed it out, printed it out for him. I gave him a full behavior. I, I said, listen, you know, here we go. And I said to him, this battery, there's definitely a short me, because I'm obviously a mechanic and yeah, you know, BMW expert, yeah? So I said to him, there's definitely a short in this. I had it before, whatever, whatnot. I've changed this battery. So it's like, it's a, it's a new battery. It's not a new battery, but I changed it before the pandemic. I changed it before the pandemic, right? And so you can, yeah, you know, the car's only done like a few thousand miles since the pandemic. So you can completely get rid of the idea that it's the battery that needs replacing. It's something else. So he goes, uh, all right. So he goes, you're sure, right? I go, yeah. So then he messages me. He's such a nice guy, this, this mechanic. He goes, by the way, yeah, you never changed the battery. It's got the original battery in there for the last 12 years. <laughs> and, and when he said that, yeah, I said, obviously, I can't argue with the guy. 
because you guys told me that the battery is there from the original one. So I go to Shaz, I go, Shaz, you know, <laughs> you, know you know what happened, isn't it? I've told that guy, he did my full best, he goes, listen, this is the battery, or whatever, whatnot. He goes, you know what, what, what's happened, isn't it? Shaz goes to me. He goes, you've dreamt that you've changed the battery? <coughs> and then you've just basically gone in and told the guy, I've changed the battery. And I'm telling you now, it's exactly what he said. I, honest to God, don't know the difference between my dreams and reality. I see something, and I say, yeah, that's what I said, or that's what I didn't say. Or that people take liberties now with me now because they can just say 100%. You said, oh, I'm, I've got no defense. Like, I could have dreamt it. And then when I sat and thought about it, and you know why I thought this? Because most cars have their batteries in the front, isn't it? Yes? But my car has its battery in the boot. Right? And I know that I've definitely changed a battery on a BMW before in the back. And it's then when I realized that it's the one that I changed 14 years ago in my old BMW. And the emotional anchoring of that moment is so burnt in my head that I've definitely changed a battery at some point in the back. And I'm looking at this one and I'm saying, this is the one. Now, my point being is that if you leave things to just thinking, in a, if you are in any way compromised by doubt, you are finished. But if you write something, say something, have markers, visual things that can't be doubted, or not can't be doubted, but rather help bring stability to an uncertain, doubtful scenario, you help that person. That's how the scholars have always helped people with what's worse. They've said to them, use certain physical markers. They give them, for example, the permission to, in the salah to use beads or make a mark, or to count, or to X, or to Y, just to bring stability and confidence back to a person. And so that's the, that's the advantage of doing it. What's the cost of it? The cost of it is that you make a person very robotic, and you make a person very kind of away from the spirit of the situation, but you also then lead to people being in this scenario here where you're telling them that you've got to pray for, when actually there's no evidence for that. So, we're, so when I say negative, we're actually telling the people to do something which we don't believe is the correct position, right? Now, you might say to me, why don't I go and promote this idea that, listen, don't worry about it, man. Just enter the prayer and if it's two, it's two. If it's four, it's four. You know, this kind of laissez-faire, kind of, you know, just kind of chill kind of approach because I don't have the guts. And the reason I don't have the guts is that there will be absolute chaos. And I want to say to you that if we were to measure on a scale of what's the biggest problem of the ummah in terms of spirituality and being in the presence and whatever, is it the fact that they're making too many mistakes by being super clear about their religion, yeah, but having zero understanding of the spirit of it, versus, yani, Allowing a person to become so liberal with the matter that they don't have any kind of sacredness with the act. Yeah? And for them it just becomes taltahe kind of, you know? It's like people doing ghusl, for example. It's a real thing. Like, what's the biggest kind of ajib thing about our generation? Our generation. The biggest ajib thing about our generation is showers every day. What the hell is that all about? Right? This is an unknown concept. 
entirely unknown concept. Just like from every point, of, from a cleanliness point of view, it doesn't make any sense, right? From a water point of view, it doesn't make any sense. The idea that a person is actually showering every day without a legal reason to, without, because they're not menstruating or no relations or whatever, and they're just showering. But it's a lifestyle. People feel better, they enjoy it, they like, want to be clean, they want to smell nice, etc., etc., etc. And with, the, 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 with this generation, I don't mean Generation Z, I mean this era, right? These 30, 40 years of the last whatever, of this ready on tap water, hot water, for example, readily available, people have embraced it, right? Like, if we had no hot water, you'd see this whole situation and it'd go to 10% of what it is, but you'll still find a, a level of people doing it more than what should be. Right, And what this has led to is that now people cannot differentiate between a shower that they need to do for an actual reason of worship and just to have a shower. Because I put in front of you right now that there's not a single person sitting in front of me or online that goes and does a just a shower after menses or sexual relations or another reason or Jumu'ah for example and doesn't use soap, doesn't use shampoo, doesn't go through the normal routine, doesn't do their normal shower routine. Now, if that's true, and I'm putting the forward that it is true, then what's differentiating between the two? And people are so relaxed with the matter. So a person might be going in to come out of menstruation, but actually this is their daily shower anyway. Right? And so it's their daily shower anyway. Did they see it as that? Have they been able to retain the sacredness of leaving a state of dirt into pure when menstruation was never dirty in the first place? That's what the Prophet ﷺ said to Aisha, right? You're not dirty. This is ritual impurity, right? Sexual relations, you're not dirty. Sexual fluids are pure. So you're not dirty by anything. Sah? Yeah? It's ritual impurity. It's a mood that you're removing. But what mood are you removing when you're not even spiritually aware that I'm leaving impurity to purity? Leaving a state that's not good enough for certain worship. Now I want to worship you more. But practically you've done no kind of calm, be present, you know? And I said this before, if I didn't, then I should say it again. The word uh, ablution is so much better than the word washing or whatever else we use for the word. Although ablution is the perfect Latin translation of the word, which is uh, a thingy washing. And that's the irony. The irony is, and this is like really funny. You know when you see movies and you see the people, they always mess up the prayer. Yeah, they're like, like you know, like, you know, a Hollywood movie where the guy, the terrorist, is, is praying. You know what I mean, yeah? He's like, he's saying Fatiha in Ruku'a and he's doing, you know, and whatever. So they often, they show these two clips, right? The first clip is him praying, and the second clip, or the, the, the first clip is making wudu, and the second is pray. Would you agree? That's like the classic stereotype terrorist scenario, and they're showing the terrorist making wudu before he does the bomb, or the final prayer before he does the bomb. We all focus on how rubbish the prayer is. Didn't they have a Muslim lady consultant? Couldn't they find one person to teach them how to pray? But if you look at the wudu, I swear to you the wudu is as good on the sunnah as you've ever seen. You watch them, they're like... In slow motion. It's like... And they go like this. In slow motion. Yeah, and you can you like you feel this guy really is getting ready to blow himself up. He really is purifying himself 
for this act of worship. You know what I mean? They want to do that, and subhanAllah, they actually got the actual reality of wudu absolutely spot on. Because the Prophet ﷺ said that when a person makes wudu, the sins are being washed off. Now, if you imagine if you saw sins on your arm, you wouldn't be doing this, would you? <laughs> Underneath the tap, right? You'd be like, you know what I mean? You'd be like, and then, you know, as the hadith says, right? You'd be going up here and you'd be doing, you know, you'd be doing behavior, wouldn't you? You wouldn't be just like, you'd be like, you know what I'm saying? And you'd be doing the full behavior. So, but my, my point is, my point is what? Is that, forget that, you know, about the, uh, the practicalities of the final act. The point is the intention. The intention when it becomes too relaxed, like I fear is, people don't actually connect with the, intention, with the, with the, with the intended power of the act of worship. Now, now you have the two in front of you now. Weigh it up. What's the bigger problem? The second one or the first one? And it's difficult. I put it to you. Which one is the bigger challenge? Which one is a bigger priority for us to fix amongst the masses? Do we... Do we keep do we need to make the Nia process stronger do we need to make the do we need to make it more formal is the easiest way or do we need to make it more informal which has the bigger threat what's your thoughts what do you think because the practicing the practicing masses have always associated themselves with the priority being to informalize everything Whereas the more uh, secular and the more, ironically secular, right? But the more kind of rote and ritual and cultural focus more on the formalizing of things. Gotta put the hat on. If I don't put the hat on, I can't even pray. People doesn't even pray at all. But they'll look for the basket and be thinking, I'm going to go in now, pray. My only prayer of the week, gotta put a hat on. Got to know what the niya is. Got to know what, how to say Formal, 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 formal Things that are from a cultural point of view That's a danger, obviously And then you've got the danger of informalizing everything And a person's just like, you know what I mean? Relaxed and, and the like no, I think, uh, most there, And there is an ethnicity thing There is definitely an ethnicity thing That's the problem, we've got a bias Because we've seen, we think this, this is the bias. So look at the other way. When I teach Fiqh Salah, when I taught it back in the original time as well, I said this is the classic Arab Desi dichotomy. The Arabs see the Desis and the whatever, non-Arabs, as just like, well, like what, what, what are you not even doing? Yeah? Like, what is this? And, and, you know, like you're all robots. Whereas the Paks are like, the Arabs like, are you even praying? Guys like that, Shimag is like this. He's like that. Looks at his watch. It's that one. Wallah, uqsim billah. It's the standard. Arabs are like chill in their prayer. Like, yeah, whatever. You know, walking, does his clothes again. Takes off his jacket, puts it back on again. And like, the pack is like, he's like, what's happening here? This prayer has been at least invalidated 15 times. He's whatever. So one looks at the other one and says, well, I don't know what you're doing. And the other one looks at the other one and they don't know what they're doing. And this, as I said, is the danger of the two things, right? The over-formalizing and the formalizing.
informal the agreement. No, no, we've gone past that. No, no, they're both praying. We've got, let's imagine that we've got two people that are exhibiting this. No, that doesn't make sense. We've got one person who's somewhere in the... That doesn't make sense either. And what do you think the two sides were trying to do to the thingy? Of course they were thinking that this is the easier way to pray. If you're a person who can't remember... Blah, 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 and I go to you, Lala, don't need to make niya. Just say, I need to stand in front and say, Allahu Akbar. Have I made it easy for you? Yes. And if the other guy is like, right, he comes back next week, he goes, you know this whole idea of yours, this great idea of just stand there and pray. I was standing there and I was petrified. I couldn't even, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I need to have something to say. Tell me something that locks it in. The intention behind the teachers is always to make it easier to pray. The question I'm asking you is, where is the bigger threat? Formalizing or informalizing? Because obviously from a knowledge point of view, we should argue and say that the sunnah is the answer. But that's what everybody's claiming, right? I've been claiming that all my life, and I do believe that informalizing it is closer to the sunnah because you'll find that the more correct positions fall into the informal because if you've seen what i've been speaking about right now like many of you are in shock i know that when i said that a person starts the prayer thinking that he's praying for and then he can just change it to two that's like yeah i need the packs would just went right i'm dead now just kill me now all the hanafis were like oh no what this guy's on yeah and that's the classic example of formal people thinking how is that even possible whereas the arabs are like yeah man that sounds sick that's what I've been doing all my life, and I know that's the, the correct position. So the irony is, is that the sunnah position seems to be falling into the informal category. Well, of course, that's not the case because anyone's upon the sunnah, when they're doing the informal, they are so locked into that act of worship. They're like so present, even the, in the informal approach to it. They're far more practicing, far more religious. They've got far more sacredness in their, in their whatever. So obviously, we're trying to call to a proper true religiosity, whether it's Expressed via formality or informality, but anyway. The informality, or that the irony is, I would argue the exact opposite. You said the informality leads to more bid'ah. The exact opposite. If you don't do anything, you can't be doing bid'ah, bro. Whereas if you're adding, if I'm saying to you, brother, you didn't say, I am praying for rakah, biche this imam. So you're the one who's actually introducing bid'ah and doing more bid'ah. So from a bid'ah argument, no, it's the opposite of what you just said. Now, obviously, obviously, when you um, uh, look at a positive of the informal method, the informal approach, the positive is, is that people start to enjoy it more and feel it more natural and less effort. And the theory is, is that they're meant to then embrace it as part of normative life. And why that makes sense is because a lot of the formality makes the life incredibly impractical, right? And the deen is not meant to be like that. It's not meant to confuse people. A lot of the time when you get formal, the people think that they're out of confusion, but then they come across something and it gives them a crisis of faith. They're like, how is that possible? I've only been taught this way. Whereas the person's like, listen, this is what the Prophet ﷺ said, and this is possible, and this is possible, and I'm pretty good. You know what I mean? So each have got like their pros and cons. I was going to say, because you're saying when it's formal, it's like 
Then it's all over. Yep. So I continue from there then to say the problem with that is that you're like, yeah, this is okay, that's okay, this is okay, and that's okay. And then we create that generation of people who are just like neither here nor there. You're just like, nah, everything's all good. We'll do whatever you want. And it starts to take a mock, make a mockery of the deen. Now my question to you is that, is that a threat that we've seen real numbers compared to the people who are suffering in the formal sides? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think, I, I think if there's any part that's on the rise, it's that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. 100%. It is, it is more of a Christian, God's love. I don't need to be able to prove it, understand it, explain it. But it's the spirit of Islam. And they, 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 you know, people did try to kind of present this as a Jewish and Christian paradigm. And, or the spirit of the law and the letter of the law paradigm. And you know, it's just one which is, um, which is a thingy. Just to see some thingy. Um, but if you're not smart enough to do an open intention for your salah, and you intend to raka'a dhuhr, praying behind someone who looks like a traveler but prays in full, your intention doesn't match the prayer. If you intend to pray two raka'ah, praying behind someone who looks like travel, praising in full, your intention doesn't match the prayer. Is this a problem? No. Remember what we said, right? So if a person doesn't end up praying two and ends up praying four, you're praying four because what's obligated is to follow the imam. All right? Um, all right. Um, so let's, uh, let's just finish this then. And the, the, the ninth then issue at the bottom of 371, he goes, so, so, so what's this scenario? Now he's not sure whether he made the intention for Qasr or not. So in the previous scenario, he hadn't. He hadn't made the intention for Qasr at all. He had intended to pray Dhuhr, intending to pray for, then realized he was a Musafir. And so we've just told him that the Madhab says you've got to fulfill the prayer, complete the prayer but we're not completing the prayer. We believe he only needs to pray too. The second scenario now is that he doesn't know whether he made the, the qasr or whatever. Now, obviously, if we've allowed the guy to pray short and, and he didn't even make the niyana, of course we're going to allow him to pray too if he's not sure. We're going to say, if you're sure or not sure, you're going to pray too anyway. Is that clear, everybody? And the madhab are going to stick on the safe side and they're going to say, no, you've got to pray for. And I think that's clear and that's, I think, a nice point too. And formally, now we can do some questions and things like that. All right. Uh, let's have a look. Shazad Salim, help me out here. Where did all the questions start that I was part of and not? Sorry, uh, Baji was late, huh? As usual, Baji. What if you are a resident and you are in the scenario where you pray behind someone else you thought was a resident, but they were a traveler? And they finish after two. Do you get up and complete another two? Yes, you do. Obligated to. If you are doing dhuhr, for example, or do you do the full four again? Nope. You stand up and you pray two exactly as you 
uh, uh, said. Right, what's not? What if you don't know if the Imam prayed full or qasr? We, we, we already spoke about that. Is it sufficient to state the intention? You see, Abida was miles ahead of this uh, conversation. State the intention for the name prayer, and the units are defined by the state of the individuals. That's the perfect summary, what Abida has said. Okay? Sorry, I didn't see all this. What if you remembered in the third raka'ah that you are a musafir? That's a good one, isn't it? That's a good one. In the third raka'ah, we're going to like just pull out, yeah? Like, listen, I prayed one extra. It does. That's actually the point where it becomes real. In the third raka'ah, you're like, what's happening? So, what do you say? Go for it, Zafar. Yep. Oh, at the beginning? Oh, got it. Now, that's something else. That's easy. No, 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 no. You're changing the scenario. No, no, you're changing the scenario. Zafar gave a different scenario. He said that he's already made the intention for Qasr. And he's automatically prayed for, and he's in the third rakah. Then, and what did you do? You completed the four. Even though you made qasr for two. Yeah. You scheme. <laughs> <laughs> that is a Hanafi in you, man. That, that's a, Shaz, what would you do? No, what would you do? I didn't say what you would. What would you do? I know exactly what you would do, bro. You are sitting right down. Sajjah Sahu right there. You see, this is my soul partner, okay? That's exactly what I did last month. Liberal guys. Liberal guys that are. We are. Ross! Easy, Shaz. Ross, Shaz, easy there. So, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, both are. Both. Now, you see, here's the thing. The pack in you, the Hanif in you, the everything else in you is saying, well, now I can't pray to, therefore I should pray for. Now just pause there. What's the logic in that? Like you're saying, because I've entered into the third, I now need to pray for. What's the evidence for that? Especially if you intended to do two. If you were praying for, yep. you went to the fifth by accident, wouldn't entail my argument. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, did you get his example? That's a fantastic example, by the way. How's it, you sick guy? What a fantastic example. Oh, no, sorry. Actually, subhanAllah, Sheikh Uthameen spoke about that two weeks ago. He said, you can't make that argument because a six unit prayer doesn't exist, whereas a four unit does. He actually mentioned that two weeks ago, but it was in a different scenario. That's a good point, that, yeah. So anyway, the point is, is that if we are going to use the logic argument here, that I've gone to three, so I might as well go and do four, well then, the counter logic is, well, you've done one extra, and just cut, and you're now praying extra, and God, so both have an argument, but one is clear to be the stronger common sense-wise, whereas one would be like a safer thingy uh, kind of scenario, yeah. If you're in the third, yeah. So it, it, I'm not saying you need to. I'm not saying you have to. If you compete, compete, it's fine. But if it's me and I've done this and I've stood up and I'm now in my third rakah and I'm like, listen, I'm praying qasr. What's going on? I've sat right down right there because everything that I'm doing and saying is additional to my prayer. Because I've added to the prayer, I need to now make up for that, compensate for that because it's a mistake. I will now say tashahud. I'll finish. I will give taslim. Salaamu alaykum wa rahmatullah once. You've got to finish the prayer because when you 
add to the prayer, you've got to exit the prayer. So you've got to say, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, to sajda, salams, salams. Yep, that's what I would do. If you're intended for and then realized, I would do the same. Just like what Sheikh Uthameen said. I intended for because I forgot I was Musafir. Remember that I was Musafir. When I got to third, I'd be sitting down. I'd be sitting down. What if you intended to and you realized it was four? What if you intended what? If you intended to read two. Intended to read two because you're a Musafir. No. That's the same logic. The same, same logic. It's, a, it's the same logic. What happens if you were meant? What happens if you were meant? What if you couldn't do it? What would it be for? Because you can't do two because you're Musafir. Musafir is the first one. You're supposed to explain. What? <laughs> you took me there and then you went like this. Say again. You... You, you are Musafir, so you need to do two, but you, oh, you started, yeah, that's, that's what he said, that's what he said, right? So, you're meant to do two, you stood up for the third. If your intention was two. No, no, he didn't say that, man. Where did you go and take it, Yara? And he, that you're meant to do two, then you forgot again in the same prayer, stood up for th- <laughs> Then you stood up and then you would do the same thing. You would sit right down, right there, because you only need to do two. And you would, you would finish off the prayer, you would say, Salaam alaikum rahmatullah, and then you do the two prostrations. These two prostrations after the salah, they, make, they fix up the, the mistake. That's a good one, I like that. Multiple, yani, multiple forgetfulness. Right, that sounds like me. Right. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Uh, where, where, where. My mother-in-law watched a video on YouTube yesterday that stated the following If you scratch yourself three times and your prayer is invalidated Or if you look somewhere else more than three times and the prayer is invalidated And she miskeen, got so worried and she thought she has years of making up the prayer Now as funny as that is and as much as we know that is That's a classic example of a negative Right? That you start to take these subjective uh, measurements as absolutes and like real proper absolutes right so yeah um i don't have what's worse but because of adhd etc i will often forget which raka'a i am on so can the technique of using markers in this type of situation be allowed absolutely absolutely it is allowed you know especially studying this class this one in particular the whole point of doing this deep, deep study, because it's ridiculous that it's 12 years now we've been studying this class and we're still st- stuck in the chapter of Salah, right? And the reason for that is that we're going to a level of depth which is not normal. And we've seen that the movement issue in Salah is incredibly flexible. And moving, using things, writing things down, making a note, you know, even grabbing a pencil, whatever, whatnot, all of these to help a person, especially if you have a condition, that's even more yani, uh, relaxed, yeah? Um, uh, where are we now? Uh, yeah, Madam is sharing that. I went to Jordan and we were restricted on water. Our teacher was surprised that we were able to adapt. He said, usually the Westerners can't handle not showering every day. It's true. It's not, it's not sunnah. It's not, it's not right. 
actually. It's a, it's a luxury habit, right? Unless, of course, there are, you know, uh, legal reasons. But other than that, no, it's not. It's like, you know. Um, yeah, and it's also the comfort of the West. Yeah, just like we said, right? It's impossible to shower every day in winter in places like Pakistan, regardless of warm water. It's so cold in the house, in the bathroom. You can actually get sick, yeah? 100%, 100%. And it's obviously like, does that mean in, in amongst the city houses and things like that um, and then okay do we have any more uh, questions guys uh, I don't think okay your point on not praying Qasr at your parents house did confuse me a little because I do this I don't have clothes at my parents or a room so use that as the no comforts argument. Would that be sufficient? So remember we spoke about this, right? Now we've got two angles when we speak about this. Two angles. The first angle is that it's actually home. Now if it's not actually home, then that's off the thing. So if she's saying that, Zara's saying that I don't even have clothes at the house. I mean, they properly got rid of you, and if you don't even have any flipping, like they properly, I hope you cried, proper cried on the wedding day. All right? Because that's what they're saying, isn't it? We're crying because we've, now, we've been out, out. And if you've got no flipping clothes and even your bed's been and turned into a sofa, then you should cry. So that's fine. All right. But the second is the fact that the qasr is not obligatory in the first place. That's the stronger pillar. Now, if we agree that these are the two things that will allow flexibility on the issue of qasr, the fact that you are, when you're at home, you feel like you're at home, even you know, regardless of your bed or your clothes or whatever, because you can walk around and don't need to worry about anything and hijab and all the rest of it. And the second, that qasr was not obligated in the first place, then what are the kind of things that you would leave if it wasn't obligated? You'd look at mood, you'd look at interaction, you'd look at reaction, you'd look at, you know what I mean? And as I said, there are parents that are incredibly bitter about the fact that you've left them alone, whether, especially for a male. For a female, not so. But for a male, leaving the home, and going to live with your wife or going living somewhere else. If you're not married, then they've lost the one that they get everything done by. If you're married, then you're, you love the wife more than you love us. You can't win in either of the scenarios. And then if you now come home and start treating it like a hotel, and like I'm not from this house, so I'll pray Qasr, for example, I'm a guest in this. Bro, you're just basically putting petrol and gas and diesel and everything onto this fire. Yeah? You're literally just, you know, so I think that the fact that it's not obligated to do it in the first place and therefore you are flexible on the matter, you should look for the better interest. If you know that there's going to be fitna, then think. Whereas if you know that your parents are chill and you genuinely aren't comfortable and you've got in-laws in the house, for example, not in-laws, in-laws? Like your brother-in-law. Yeah, in-law, yeah. Uh, brother-in-law's at home, for example. And, you know, so you don't, you're not comfortable, comfortable and you do have to wear hijab and as then of course you can pray qasr, it's not an issue uh, at all. Um, question from Razan on the LP chat. She says, Does anyone know my uh, attending a burial? I looked through the fiqh of death notes. Uh, no, I think it's permissible. I think it's permissible, but attending the burial is different to uh, being involved in the burial. Women are not involved in the burial, but they can attend the burial, and that's my position. Um, but they've got to stay out of the way it's not. Yani the way. It's not the way of the Salaf, the, 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 uh, uh, 
uh, as uh, as uh, uh, um Salama, um Salama radiallahu anha, she said, she said that uh, that we used to follow the Janais, uh, and then we were prohibited from that by the Prophet sallallahu alaihi but not strictly, right? Meaning it's not a woman's scene. It's a lot of whatever, and you know, so you just yeah, it's allowed for you to go. Yeah. What if you completed the third though? Should you complete the fourth? We've already said that. We don't think so. And if one regularly travels for work, is it okay not to shorten the salah? Yes, that's okay. And actually, I do believe that um, this is now the point of bid'ah. Okay. If I was to say to you now that the people who travel to work regularly, meaning they are legally traveling over 70 miles or 60 miles, and they could argue that it's a proper journey that they do, and that they therefore should be traveling every day, but they're doing it every day, and I say that you, know, you should pray full, yeah? This would be an incorrect statement legally, right? Because they're still doing everything that's required for them to travel. But if I was to argue from the, the, the point of view that when people travel all the time, the sacrifice or the, 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 the victim is the sunnah prayers. And when a person doesn't pray sunnah for a long period of time, it is next to impossible to bring that back into a person's life. And we've seen that before and we've spoken about it as well, that this generation doesn't even know what sunnah is. And even the generation before that, so Gen Z, like, what's Sunnah? And then millennials are like, oh, it's not obligatory. And as for boomers and our generation, that kind of, maybe, and even that's probably weak. And for our parents, it's like, yani, it's like no difference between the Fard and the Sunnah. Yeah? Now, you've got four generations, four uh, approaches. Which one do you think is the safer one? That's the classic argument of formal versus informal. You could say Gen Z have understood Islam fully. It's true, isn't it? Right? It's not obligatory, isn't it? So if they don't do it, then Gen Z got it right. The informal approach. You look at the boomer, uh, sorry, the, what's, the, what's above the boomers then? What's our parents? Anyway, the first, the first generation, the first natives, the first landers, islanders, first nation, yeah? Uh, if you look at them and would say that, well, they've definitely got it right because, you know, like anyone's doing any massive acts of worship in any kind of way, they're the people who are racking up the rewards. Now, I can tell you what I used to think when I was younger, and I can tell you what I think now that I'm getting older. There's absolutely not a shadow of a doubt that the parents were spot on. Right? And you see the mess and the lack of spirituality and religiosity and sacredness amongst Gen Z. They're a complete catastrophe. Right? So this goes to show that this argument of formality versus informality and the stricter approach versus the laissez-faire kind of, you know, I, go on, uh, you know, I don't pray sooner because I go protests every week. That's what it is, isn't it? I can tell you that 99% of the people who are doing the protests out there are not your normal, conservative, formal practicing Muslims. It's just facts, right? Maybe not an exaggeration, 90, 95, right? But they're the ones that are getting out there doing lots of things, lots of big things. So what do you say now? Oh, yeah, you carry on. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a catch-22. There is no absolute right answer here. It's a complicated issue. issue is multi-dimensional. Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. Fizza, you wish that I'm Gen X. I am full boomer and proud of it. Full boomer and proud of it. All right, folks. We're good. All right. Next weekend, don't forget, make sure you tell all friends and family and everybody for 
uh, arts. So that's happening next weekend. It's at University of Manchester. It's at Roscoe, which I haven't been out for years. Can't wait. Um, so that's next Saturday and Sunday. Not this weekend, weekend after. And uh, the Friday is going to possibly be... Is that not confirmed yet? Still. Friday will probably be somewhere else. All right? And uh, uh, Hajj, I spoke to... Did I mention that last week? Hajj now is very serious. I went and had the meeting with the people. And... Um, the big, the big news for Hajj, like a major development, is that now everybody from anywhere can join. Uh, not anywhere, sorry. The Western countries can join a program. And before, it was only Americans, well, even Americans went. Last year, the Canadians couldn't get in, yeah, into our program. Now, not only Canadians, but Trinidad, West Indies, Sweden, uh, Denmark, all the small countries and everything. So... If you've got your friends and family, what they need to know now is that they need to get their name on that registration list ASAP because it's already like a thousand strong or whatever. And it's only 400 spaces. All right. Barakallahu feekum. Jazakumullah khair. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika. Shadu wa la ilaha illa anta astaghfirukallahumma wa atubu ilaik. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.